Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. I'm sure many of you woke up this morning thinking of a singular question, which was this. How does the circus connect with John chapter four? I'm sure that kept you up last night. I'm sure as you've been studying John chapter four this week, you're like, man, I really hope he covers the question, how does the circus connect with John chapter four? You rest assured, we're gonna explain how the circus connects with John chapter four here in a moment. Because if you've ever been to the circus, you know that, that humans have been able to make animals do some pretty incredible things, right? And so I remember going to the circus a long time ago, and, and what I saw was humans were able to make these massive beasts, the largest land animal, elephants, do some pretty amazing circus tricks. Like you saw these elephants able to jump up on a barrel and roll it across the stage. Uh, you saw elephants jumping on one another and kind of living out one of our core values, which is, you know, we're better together, right? Uh, you see them jumping on barrels. You see them jumping on one another. You even see them jumping rope which I think this is Photoshop, but I just wanna live in a world in which this is possible, right? I just, wanna, I just wanna live in that type of world. But the truth is, as we see these animals doing these kind of incredible things, what we don't see is what happens off stage when they're not doing these amazing feats. You see, early on in the circus kind of story, they had to go, hey, how do we tame these large beasts? And what they decided to do was they would take these large beasts and they would chain them up to the stake in the ground. Now, anyone here can see that this massive animal, this huge elephant, could easily pull the stake out of the ground and run off, and yet it chooses not to. Because what's been happening in this elephant story is that when this elephant was much younger, he was attached to a larger stake that he couldn't pull out. And so this elephant would pull with everything in him and he would try to get off. And after days and weeks and months of doing this, he would realize I can't get this stake out. And so I'm trapped here. And as the elephant grew, the stake actually would become smaller and smaller and smaller to a certain point in which this little bitty stake is holding this massive elephant. And this elephant becomes enslaved, not to a stake in the ground, but rather a memory a failure. And I say that for us because I think a lot of us live there in certain ways. Like as we kind of move through our journey, there's these moments in our life and sometimes there's these big moments that you can easily think about right now. Or maybe there's a compilation of a lot of little moments that, that create these stakes in the ground of shame, of guilt, of fear, and they're actually holding you captive from doing what God calls you to, to do and living the life that God desires for you to love him and to love others well. And so it could be these big moments of your past in which something you did or something that was done to you that began to create this fear, this anxiety, this shame, this pride, this stake in the ground that you are now chained to. And so when you're called to go and live a life for Jesus, you're trapped. And so as we walk with Jesus, what he does through himself, through lingering with him, through community and other people, is he begins to expose these stakes that we have in the ground. Some of them we know about. 
They're coming to your minds right now. Some of them are so deep within us that, that it takes this long season in which Jesus will slowly kind of pull these stakes out of our hearts because he wants to pull these out of our hearts so that we can actually live in the freedom and joy that he would have for us in this life. And that's what Jesus desires to do. He desires to set you free from the shame, from the guilt, not just set you free from your present sins, but from your past situations that are still holding you captive by a memory of failure, of fear, and of shame. And so we've been in this series called Encountering Jesus in which we see Jesus over and over encountering these different groups of people. And so last week we saw Jesus encounter this guy named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was the ruler of the Jews. He was at the height of this religious system that basically said, if I perform before God, then I'm accepted by God. And Jesus will sit with them all night and he will unravel that lie and insert truth. He will take that stake that's in the ground and he'll pull it up so that Nicodemus can walk in a freedom that God has purchased for him. And this week, what we're seeing is that Jesus will sit down with a woman at a well. And this woman will be the exact opposite of everything Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. He had done everything to try to earn his acceptance before God. And this woman was at the opposite end of the spectrum. That if the equation is, I perform, therefore I'm accepted. The question this answers is, what if I don't perform? What if I've done certain things and I'm trapped by certain things in my story, in my situation, in my past, or my present sins that are holding me captive? And what Jesus will do is he'll linger with this woman and show that no matter where you're at on the spectrum, I'm coming after you because I love you. And so we see with this woman that she has been carrying this weight of sin and shame in her life. And it's holding her captive like this stake in the ground. And we see it just in the description of who she is. That she is full of shame because of really who she is and what she's done. That who she is, she's a Samaritan. It says in verse five and in verse seven that she was from Samaria. And so Samaria is just kind of a quick history lesson. The Israelites were this one group of people, but then at a certain point in their history, the Babylonians came and took them captive and Samaria's kind of cut a deal with those people. And so these individuals, these Samaritans were seen as shameful, traitors to God's people. And they mixed in with the Babylonians, which was what they weren't supposed to do. And so all of a sudden, they were dirty, they were unclean, they were traitors to God's people. And so this town was seen as the most shameful town to be associated with. And not only is this the most shameful town, but we see in this passage that this is the most shameful woman in the most shameful town, because it says very subtly that she came at midday, the sixth hour, which would, would have been noon. We find out later in the passage that she had five different husbands in her story and that the sixth guy that she's staying with, she's just sleeping with for, for rent. And so this woman is the most shameful woman in the most shameful town. And it says here that she came at midday, why? Well, most women would come in the very morning. They would come in groups. And because of her sin, because of her shame, she doesn't come in the morning. She comes in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day because she's not associating herself with anyone else in the town. And so what we see about this woman is she's got the stake in the ground of her past situations and her present sins that's holding her captive. And she's completely alone. She's alone within her community. She's alone with God. 
And in this moment, she will come out to draw some water. And Jesus in his love and his grace will draw her out. And he'll take this stake that's in the ground and he'll begin to loosen it up and then he'll rip it out so that she can run in freedom. And what I love about this story is that as we see Jesus do this with her, we actually see his strategy with us. That as we linger with Jesus, he's gonna lean into areas of our life that are hard, past hurts, and present pains. But like a good doctor, he's there to heal the wounds of our hearts. And as he pulls this stake out of this woman's heart, I think he's gonna do it with some of us this morning. And yet I think there's some people in here that he's not just gonna pull stakes out of our hearts, whether it's shame, fear, pride, insecurities. I think for some of us, he's gonna pull a plank out of our eye. Because when we see people like this, we don't look like Jesus in leaving the 99 and going after the one. And so we're gonna see the love of God pour out on this woman. And then we're gonna see the love of God pour out on us. So let's sit with Jesus and see what he has to say. In verse seven, it just says that he sits with her and he says, give me a drink, which I love. I've heard Kyle say this a lot around here that every spiritual conversation just begins with a conversation. And so Jesus just engaged with her in this simple conversation. Hey, would you give me a drink? For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? You're seeing the tensions here. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so Bible study 101, look for what's repeated in a passage. And this is what's repeated over and over and over again. It's the word give that Jesus wants to give this woman something. And it's so important that we understand this for this woman and for us, because this woman who is marked by sin and by shame has this overwhelming sense in her life that everyone around her has taken from her. Specifically, men in her life have taken something from her that she can't give back. And all of a sudden, she's interacting with a guy that doesn't wanna take, but wants to give. That the very heart of God for you is not what you can do for God, but God wants to do something for you. He wants to give something to you. He wants to give living water. Because he knows that for this woman and for so many of us, we go to the wells of this life and day after day, we drink the same thing over and over and yet we're still thirsty. And so he says to this woman in verse 13, he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That he sees this woman who day after day, middle of the day has to walk out in all of her sin and all of her shame, carry the weight of these water jogs on her. And he says, hey, the well you're drinking from in this life, you're just gonna get thirsty and thirsty and thirsty. And Jesus in this moment is gonna begin to draw her out and what I love about Jesus is that's exactly what he does with us. That as we sit with Jesus, he begins to pull out of us those things in us, some of the stuff we see, some of the stuff we don't see on those deeper levels of our heart that's blocking us from really living the life we were meant to live, to love him and to love others. And so I remember for me, when I went through Regent, the hardest and best step was step four. <laughs> if you've ever been through Regent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Regen begins each week by saying, hey, my name is Derek. I have a new life in Christ and I'm recovering from or I'm being saved from or I'm being rescued from. And you kind of list off the things that you're struggling with. And at the beginning for me, it was fear, anxiety, and control. And yet as I sat with Jesus throughout the process to see him, to see myself, what I begin to see in that step four, which was inventory, which is literally sitting down and listing off all these different things of your life, all the stuff that you've sinned, all the struggles, all the hurts that, that you have done and all the hurts that have been done to you, you begin to see these patterns playing out. That though there's a lot of these little chains, it's leading to the stake in the ground. And Jesus begins to wiggle it because he wants to yank it out. And so for me, that fear, anxiety, control became, really, it's a fear of man, a fear of rejection. And the more I lingered with Jesus, the more he showed me it wasn't just fear of man, fear of rejection. It was that I don't trust God. I don't trust God. And he began to pull that out. And I remember one of the best things that I did was step five was confession. I just went out into this park and I just listed off every single thing that I had done. And, and, and because that wound had been fully pulled out, I was able to receive the grace of God in a way that I never had before. I read off everything I'd ever done in my entire life that I could think of. And next to it, I just wrote, Jesus died for this. Jesus died for this. Jesus died for this. Jesus died for this. I had been running to the wells of this life drinking sand. And I kept wondering why I was still thirsty. And Jesus knows exactly why we're still thirsty. It's because we keep going to the very things that can't provide the satisfaction our hearts need. I love what Augustine says. He says, our souls are restless until they find their rest in Jesus. And what Jesus says in Jeremiah 2.13, he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn from themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, that the, the heart of humanity is that God is giving us this living water that we can absorb and take in and have life and life abundantly. But instead of receiving that, we reject it and we go our own way to our own devices and we begin to create for ourselves these cups, these broken cups that we think if we just kind of keep filling up with the things of this world, then maybe we'll be okay. Maybe we'll be satisfied. And we are so full of shame, so full of our sin that we miss out on the satisfaction that Jesus wants for us. And so we end up settling for substitutes when Jesus wants to satisfy our souls. That we settle, we keep drinking from the same well over and over and over again. Hey, maybe this time I'll be satisfied. Maybe this time I'll be filled up. Maybe if I got this guy in my life, maybe if this girl liked me, maybe if I got this job, maybe if I got this house, maybe if I had this comfort, maybe if I checked that website just one more time, I just need it one more time. Maybe if I had a few more followers, maybe if I just got a little bit more of that same thing that's never quenched my thirst, then I'll be okay. And it's a lie that we settle for these substitutes in life and Jesus goes, you will always be thirsty. But I wanna satisfy your very soul that your heart is thirsty for something more. It was made to drink from something so much deeper made to be, have encounter with the living water that is Christ. So Jesus starts to pull out the stake in this woman's heart and he begins to pull it out in our own to show us that he offers something so much better. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him 
that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying, I have so much something, so much better for you that you've been going to the wells of this life and drinking sand and you're wondering why you're still thirsty because none of those things were ever meant to satisfy your heart, but I can and I will and I wanna give you a living water that's gonna come in you and then overflow with life. And so in this moment, this woman hears this and, and something begins to stir in her and she goes, okay, whatever you have in that moment, I want that. And she says, here in verse 15, she says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. But then I want you to notice why she wants this water. She goes, give me this water, why? That I won't be thirsty again and I won't have to come out here to draw water. She goes, give me this water, why? Because I wanna create a situation around me in which I don't have to feel the shame and the sin of my past and my present. I wanna create a moment in which I just don't need to encounter with people around me. And so I'll watch online but I don't wanna come into a church service because I just feel so exposed and I feel like everyone's eyes on me and so I don't want that. So just create an online platform and I'll listen to sermons and I'll read my Bible, but I don't wanna be around God's people because it's a reminder of my sin and my shame. Or I'll do what I used to do. I would come in and in high school, I would sit in the back and I would just hope and pray like nobody would talk to me. <laughs> and I hated meet and greet time. Because I was like, oh, I have to like interact with another human being. And, and, and I just felt so exposed in that moment. And I would try to come in after that. And then I would try to leave before the last song. And so many of us just go, man, the moment we start getting exposed, the moment people start to know us, we just go, okay, I got to switch jobs. I got to switch schools. I got to switch community groups. I got to switch churches. Because everyone here is starting to know the real me and who I am and what I've done. So I'll just skip to the next one. And then I'm just in this cycle of drinking from the wells of this world. And I'm so afraid to be fully known. I'm afraid if I'm fully known that I won't be fully accepted. She says, give me this water. Why? So I can just go back to hiding. So I don't have to come out here. Because everyone knows who I am and what I've done. And I don't want that shame and that guilt to be that constant reminder. And so in this moment, she wants a situation that would prevent her from experiencing the shame and the guilt. But Jesus wants to give her something so much more. He doesn't want to change her situation to take away her shame. He wants to take away her shame, to take away her sin. And he's going to lean in at the very point of her greatest hurt, and her greatest thirst. It says in verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. You see, in this moment, what, what Jesus is doing is, is he's actually leaning in to the very point of her greatest hurt and her greatest shame. And in what he's doing is just being a good doctor a good doctor, if you walk in with a broken leg, he doesn't analyze your arm. And if you sit there with them and just go, why are you looking at my leg? That's the part that hurts. And when you touch it, it hurts. Just praise me for my arm. That doctor would be like, no, I can't do that. If I did that, like I'd be a bad doctor. They'd make a Netflix documentary about me. A good doctor will lean into the point of your greatest hurt 
not to harm you, but to heal you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But this woman does what a lot of us do. We kind of tell these half truths. We kind of mitigate what's really going on. Now, I don't really have a husband. And Jesus leans in and he says, you know, you're actually right. And saying, I have no husband for you have actually had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I want you to notice that Jesus actually isn't rebuking her. He's stating objective reality. This is the well you're drinking from. This is why you're not satisfied. This is why you're full of shame. That's exactly what he does with us. And what happens in this moment for a lot of us, I mean, just like imagine being in this moment with this woman. Imagine being this woman. Like imagine in a moment that you're interacting with someone and and in that moment, they share every single thing about you. All of your sin, all your shame, all your brokenness, all your past, all your present, all your half-truths, all your misdirections, all those things that you are terrified that somebody around you would know. And they look you in the eye and they tell you that exact reality. What would you do in that moment? What a lot of us do is simply this, like we begin to blame everyone else around us. Like we, get, we start to feel that God is pulling away the stake in us and instead of acknowledging the brokenness in us and the broken leg that we have, we begin to blame everyone else around us. You know, hey, if you really knew my husband, if you really knew my wife, if you really knew what was actually going on in my community group, what we do is we draw a circle around ourselves and we kind of deflect and blame everyone else around us. That's exactly what we do. Or we run. Jesus begins to kind of pull out this deeper levels that we have in our heart and we don't like that. So we just kind of run away or we hide or we mitigate it or we just kind of numb our pain with the next thing on Netflix. That's what we do. There's something inside of us that when the pain is exposed, we wanna hightail and get it out of there. And to this woman's credit, she doesn't do that. She doesn't run. She doesn't blame. But in fact, she will actually lean in and she'll let the doctor go to work. And in this moment, she will reveal the deepest wound of her heart. She'll say this, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. So the first time I read this, I thought she was just changing the subject. But in changing the subject, she's actually revealing the deeper levels of her heart. This woman has a religious framework that she's seen the world through. And in Jerusalem and in Samaria, there was these two temples, these places you would go and worship God. And the reality of it was because of her sin and because of her shame and because of who she was and what she had done, she wasn't allowed in either one of them. And so she's feeling a deeper level of hurt than she could possibly imagine that it's not just my community has rejected me. It's not that these men have used me. It's that when I come before God, I don't feel like I'm accepted by him. I'm not allowed to worship here. I'm not allowed to worship there. And I can't worship God anywhere because of who I am and what I've done. My sin and my shame have defined me. And so I can put on a mask and I can pretend everything is okay while I'm dying inside because all I wanna do is drink that living water you're talking about, but I can't because I can't go to Jerusalem. I can't go to Samaria because at the end of the day, I truly believe God does not want me. And it's at that very moment 
that her wound is finally exposed. It's not about her sin. It's not about her shame. It's the fact that her sin and her shame is tying her into this false worldview that says God does not want you and God doesn't love you and God doesn't care about you. And so this woman throughout this will make it about her physical need, water, but Jesus will make it about her spiritual need, living water. She's gonna make it about confessing enough to be comfortable. Jesus will make it about convicting enough to heal. She's gonna make it about a theological proposition. He's gonna make it about a relational proposal. Because in this moment, when her wound is finally exposed, the doctor gets to work. And he says two words that are so instructive for us. He says, believe me. Believe me. Not a proposition. Believe a person. Stop listening to those voices in your head and the voices of the world that say that God can't love you and that you're not good enough and you can't be used by God. Stop listening to those because that's of the devil. Believe me that I have come, that I love you and I care about you because John 20 says that when you believe in Jesus, it springs forth life. And so Jesus looks at this woman and says, I want you to forget everything, to look me in the eye and says, believe me, believe me. He says, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. It's not about where you worship It's about how you worship and who you worship. He says this, he says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That Jesus goes, look, I don't just want your mind. I don't just want you to think rightly about God. We in our culture and our context and our tradition are really good at this one. Really good about having the right frame of reference about who God is, but we can know who God is on an intellectual level, but never engage with him on an emotional level and an intimate level. And that's what he wants for us. That what you think about what you th- when you think about God is the most important thing about you, yet simultaneously, if you're not engaging on an emotional heart level with the God who is, then it doesn't matter how much intellectual knowledge you have. If it's not producing in you the springs of water, which is love, back to God and back to one another, then we are not worshiping God in the way that he wants us to worship. He wants all of you, your intellect and your emotion, your head and your heart. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus is saying to this woman, God wants all of you, all of you. And I love this line, he is the father is seeking such people to worship him. That God is on a mission and he is relentlessly seeking you. That God is more active in his pursuit of you than you will ever be in your pursuit of him. That that is the immense love of God. And so he says, God is spirit. He's everywhere. So you can worship him everywhere. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And at this moment, this woman feels this has gotta be too good to be true. Does God really want me? 
Does God really like me? Does God really love me? Can God really use me? And in this moment, he says, she says, I know that there's this guy, the Messiah is coming, he's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. I know you're saying these things, but I'm waiting for this hero to come into the story and he's gonna tell us what God's really like and what he really wants. And in this moment, Jesus looks at her and simply says, I'm here. He says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The God of the universe is looking you in the eye and telling you that he loves you. That I have left the 99 to come after the one. And I know your sin and I know your shame. I know those things that haunt you. I know those things that when you really wanna move out into this world that holds you captive, I have come to set you free. The hero has arrived into your story. The savior has come. This is the first person that hears that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. A Samaritan, shameful, sinful woman that should tell you a lot about the God who is. And in this moment, we can't miss out on the reality that as Jesus is pulling this stake out of her heart, he's actually pulling the log out of ours. You see, the disciples are gonna come back and they come back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman but nobody said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Like, I love this moment. They're walking back and they're going, he's talking to a woman. Like, you ask him. No, you ask him. No, you ask him. And they just decide, no, like, we can't. We're not in charge here. And what's happening in this moment is this, these disciples, and I think many of us, have this prejudice in our mind about a certain type of person that Jesus is really coming for, that Jesus is really loving, and Jesus is telling them, you don't get to decide who I love. I love the world, and I'm on mission here, and these disciples are so like many of us. They go, and they're so focused on their task and what Jesus can do for them that they miss out on the mission that's in front of them. They just went to Samaria, and they came back with stuff. Jesus sat with one woman and came back with a soul. And Jesus is looking at these individuals with these planks in their eye and he's looking at us and going, if you're gonna ride with me, then it's not just about some cute little quiet time. You ride with me, you go where I go. You love who I love. You care about who I care about. You leave your 99, you go after the one. You go after the person that is different than you. He doesn't look like you, doesn't talk like you, doesn't vote like you. Because that's the very person Jesus has come for. It's the very person that the Father is seeking. So for some of us, we gotta take that plank out of the ground, that stake out of the ground. And for others of us, we gotta get the plank out of our eye. And we have to cross every boundary because that seems to be where Jesus is. And you wanna see a movement of God in your life, you go where God is moving. And so if you're in here and you think, man, could God really want me? 
did God really like me? There's this beautiful moment in here. Jesus is breaking every imaginable barrier to get to this woman. He's a man, she's a woman. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. He's respected, she's an outcast. And yet it says back in verse four that he had to pass through Samaria. Most Jews would go around it to avoid the sin and shame of those types of people. But Jesus had to go through. He had a divine appointment with one singular woman that he will move heaven and earth to sit with you, to have that lengthy conversation so that we don't run, we don't hide, but that he would pull out those stakes in our hearts so that living water would flow in and flow out of us. And when he was surrounded by a group of people, he looked at them and just said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. The question for you is simply, are you thirsty? Only Jesus can satisfy. So if you think God couldn't want you, you may just very well be the very person that God's seeking this morning. If you think, man, God couldn't use me, I have a past, I have a situation, or God couldn't use like that part of my story. There's this beautiful moment that happens from here. The disciples are so blind that Jesus has to say, hey, look up. I'm gonna take the plank out of your eye and I want you to see a harvest that's ready for you to engage. And the beauty of all of this is that harvest was there because that woman went from come and see to go and tell that her story that was so marked by sin and by shame became the story she shared of her salvation. It says in verse 28, it says, the woman left her water jar. It says it left her water jar. Like the camera zooms in on this one little piece. You see, every single day, that water jar was a picture of her sin and her shame. And she just left it at the feet of Jesus. And she went away to the town and said to the people, come and see. <laughs> She's just quoting Jesus. Come and see. Come and see. For her, come and see became a go and tell. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She comes in. And we come in. And Jesus takes this plank that's in our eyes in this plank that's in the ground and the stake that's in the ground and he begins to wiggle and he begins to pull it out and nothing in this moment forced her to go and tell but she became so overwhelmed she flooded out I don't know living water and she became a source of life to the very town that she was shameful to even be in. And she becomes a missionary. And it says that many Samaritans of that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And as they sit with Jesus, the very same things begin to happen to them. It says, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. We know that this is indeed the savior of the world. 
But when Jesus saves you from your sin, it becomes the story you share of his salvation. So if you're in here and you think, does God really want me? He wants you. If you're in here and think, hey, could God really use you? Your story becomes your testimony. And if you're in here and you think, hey, this is something God did a long time ago, but does he really work today? Well, let me introduce you to our friend, Cynthia Rogers. Why don't you welcome her? Hi, guys. Good morning. Um, so my story sounds a lot like that. Um, actually, before Christ, my life was marked by shame and self-protection. The people who were supposed to love me were often the ones who hurt me. Both of my parents were uh, absent due to drug addiction and alcoholism, and I was sexually abused by a family member, and the seeds of shame took root. I lived life <laughs> believing that I could only rely on myself and that all people were the same, cruel and selfish. After being date raped in high school, I made a promise to myself that I would be tougher so that no one could ever hurt me again. And so I stole, I lied, and I raged when I felt threatened. With each poor decision, my self-worth grew smaller and shame grew bigger. I lived in fear that people would actually see how broken I was, and so I sought isolation even though I hated being alone. In the stillness of the night, it, it brought a painful silence that I desperately tried to avoid with alcohol and inappropriate relationships. It seemed to me as though the cycle would never end. God was calling for me in that silence, but I was not willing to listen. Until one night, I sat alone in a motel room, pregnant and at the end of myself. God showed me that I became what I hated selfish and cruel. Rock bottom was a beautiful, heartbreaking gift that forced me to stop and listen. So in that motel room, God brought to mind a woman who had shared the gospel with me as a teen, and I ignored what she said. In fact, I don't even remember her name, but I watched her, and she behaved like a woman who was free and full of joy. She modeled peace for five minutes of my life, and God used that to reach me there. Afraid and ashamed, I went to Watermark, and there I met so many women, like my friend Morgan, who laughed and rejoiced so beautifully that I wondered if, he was, if it was even real. I practiced asking for forgiveness and made amends with the people I had hurt. Over the next few years, Christ gave me a desire to study his word, and he graciously revealed his sweet promise of hope. He transformed me and gave me joy that I had never even imagined was possible. He transformed me, and I was forgiven. I was free from the cycle, and shame was uprooted. Life became beautiful even when it was hard. God just like he promised in Ezekiel 36, 26. He softened my heart and he gave me a new spirit to go with it. My father Abba held me close as I was presented with opportunities to tell others 
about the one who had changed me. God showed me that the story that he wrote for me could be used for his glory. So as I shared with others, God slowly brought women to me who had similar stories. He showed me that there were people out there who were still suffering and lost, and God compelled me to go and tell them that he was the only one who could break their chains, that only he could give them life. And I've served here for about five years, and can I just tell you that week after week, we see people walk into this building with their heads down with the same shame that held me captive. And I have the privilege of reminding them that their father hasn't forgotten them. Just this week with my own eyes, I saw my friend Danielle, who struggled with depression, choose to rest at his feet. And my friend Kay, a woman who was looking for worth in relationships, surrendered herself again at his feet. There are dozens and dozens of freed children around here, all because someone told them about Jesus and invited them to come and taste that he is good. Every mundane errand, carpool line, and lunch line is an opportunity to show others of the sweet joy of living life with Christ. Even as I was writing this testimony at a coffee shop, there was a man sitting next to me who said, I've been fasting and I've been praying for the Lord to take this away for three years and I'm still going back to that. And I got to tell him about a group of people who meet here on Tuesday nights at 6.30 who have been freed and changed by Christ. He helped me uh, to believe and he saved me. Just like in Acts 16.31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I share with others because I've seen and continue to see what he can do. God being at work has been an awesome gift. In all these years, I've never once doubted that he was good. And I pray that as long as he gives me breath, that I will continue to tell the next person and the next person that they would accept his love. There are so many more stories around here, and I just pray that you would ask about him. Would you invite us to tell you about what God is doing. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.